And so we said, this is crazy. I think we've essentially gone viral because of a virus. And as a result, we've sold you know, more toilet paper in a day than, than what we ever have before. I think at our peak, we were selling 28 rolls of toilet paper every second, <laughs> but we need to turn our store off to make sure that we've got enough for our subscribers and our business customers. Hey everyone, this is Jason from People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures. Thanks for tuning in today. YBF runs tech innovation hubs based in Melbourne and Sydney, and we help our startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. You can find out more at ybfventures.com. Our guest today, really excited uh, to have him on board, is the CEO and co-founder of Who Gives a Crap, Simon Griffiths. Many listeners out there will be familiar with Who Gives a Crap. The company is a subscription-based toilet paper, tissue, and paper towel brand. They now retail in 36 countries around the world, and it's also in the toilets of YBF in Melbourne and Sydney. So we're big fans too. Uh, Who Gives a Crap has a really important social mission. They donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets in the developing world, which is a really interesting story. And I'm, I'm super keen to hear more about Simon and the early days of the company all the way up till now, 2020, COVID-19 world. So Simon... Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. So, Simon, we tried doing a bit of digging into your background, but we couldn't find much about you. All we know is that you studied at the University of Melbourne in your early days. So maybe if you could help just wind the clock back, uh, tell us a bit more about yourself, where you grew up. Yeah, so I, um, I'm actually British born and my whole family is British. And then we moved to Perth when I was four years old. So I grew up in Western Australia and then left um, shortly after my 17th birthday. So in WA, you finish school when you're 17, but my birthday is quite late in the year. So I think I had my birthday in the middle of exams and then um, pretty much left and, and took a year off and, and went to back to the UK and Europe and spent a year kind of um, living in the UK. Uh, saw my brother who was over in the States at the time. And for me, that was kind of this really formative year because um, I went there with, with no money at all and had to figure out sort of how to, um, how to kind of make everything to work. And this was, you know, the year 2000. So I was in the UK living with a day trader as the kind of dot-com bubble burst. And my brother was at Stanford University at the time. He'd won a scholarship to do his PhD there. And so I visited him in Stanford. And so I got exposure to, um, you know, what was going on in kind of the tech world. And then in the, the work that I was doing, I was really lucky to sort of get taken under the wing of someone who ran a small business. And they um, had me doing odd jobs kind of during the day. And then at lunchtime, I'd jump onto their computers and I'd use like IRC chat rooms to talk to my friends back in Australia that I'd grown up with. And they saw me doing that and went, oh, you know, you seem to know a lot about the internet. Can you build a website for us? And I was like, uh, sure. Like, I've got no idea how to do that. Um, but, you know, if you give me the tools, I'll, I'll figure out how to do it. And so they kind of bought me like Dreamweaver and some other kind of software to figure out how to make that work. And I knew my way around Photoshop. And so I built kind of my first website and then ended up kind of doing freelance web design throughout that whole year basically, um, you know, in the middle of kind of the dot-com bubble popping, but everyone realizing that they needed to have websites for their business. And so that taught me a lot about um, the internet, you know, running kind of my own little small business and um, really kind of set me up to then come back and go to university. And I kind of used that money to, to pay for my first couple of years of university, which was great. And were you still working throughout university? I mean, it must be hard moving from being, you know, sort of like a, an entrepreneur to then going back to the study world for you. Yeah. So I, I sort of, I felt like at university, I sort of had a lot of the like risk taking nature that I'd had as a kid almost beaten out of me. I studied engineering and, and finance and did economics and um, sorry, commerce and did economics and finance as kind of my two streams there. And they're all pretty conservative, you know, like fairly like boring degrees, honestly, you do a lot of interesting like problem solving work and economics, I think is really fascinating, but the kind of career trajectories that you come out of, of with those sorts of degrees are basically going to an engineering firm or like maybe if you're doing something really interesting with economics you're kind of perhaps doing some policy advice work or something like that but generally speaking you're coming out into like accounting jobs and um you know stuff that is is pretty straight down the line and so they, they those sorts of like 
um, those sorts of um, that sort of study, it really I felt like pushes you into a trajectory that is the furthest away from entrepreneurship that you can possibly get to. And so um, I kind of got towards the end of my degree and I basically worked all the way through university and figured out pretty quickly that, you know, going to university in Melbourne, but having my family back in Western Australia, I figured out it was actually cheaper for me to spend my holidays in Southeast Asia than it was to go back to, to Perth to see my family. And that was because flights cost about the same to get to Southeast Asia, but obviously the cost of living was a lot lower. And so I'd spent like three or four months of every year of my six year degree basically in Southeast Asia and eventually further afield in the developing world. And I kind of saw that really as being a hobby and something that I enjoyed. And, you know, this fascination with how you could grow up in one part of the world and have a, a life that's radically different to another part of the world that's separated by often in Asia, an invisible line that, you know, kind of runs across um, a piece of land and being born on one side of that line compared to the other can mean that you ultimately have a very different life because of the environment that you're born into. And so um, I kind of traveled and, and did development work and um, saw that as a hobby. And it wasn't until the end of my degree that I started thinking about you know, what job I wanted to have. And so I, um, in a way, I sort of adopted the kind of lean startup approach for my life. And so I said, let me try a bunch of things and figure out what works and what doesn't. And so I got an internship as an electrical engineer figured out that I didn't want to do that. I got an internship as an investment banker and I went and did that and figured out pretty quickly that I didn't want to do that either. And I set my sights on management consulting. I was like, you know, I love problem solving. I love business and markets. That's probably the, the career path that's right for me. So I worked really hard towards getting that, that job offer and eventually got kind of my dream job offer. And at that moment I said, you know, I've kind of achieved this thing that I thought was going to be um, really hard to, to achieve is it the right thing for me to be doing? Is this kind of where I want to spend the next, you know, two, three years of my life? And I took some time to reflect and realize that if I hadn't liked working as an engineer, and I hadn't liked working as an investment banker, I probably wasn't going to like working as a management consultant either. And what was missing for me was that I was working on problems that I didn't really care that much about the, the outcome and the end result of what I was solving. And so I kind of took a step back and said, you know, what I'm really passionate about is development economics and how we can potentially shift the needle on what it looks like to um, be born in one part of the world compared to another. Um, and so how can I achieve those sorts of development economics outcomes that I truly care about using the skills that I've got around, you know, business and problem solving and markets. And that was when this kind of idea of, you know, running businesses here in Australia and eventually overseas but using the profits to achieve the outcomes that I truly cared about, bringing those two things together made me realize that that was sort of what I wanted to do. Um, and so that's how, yeah, I started my first business with a couple of friends called Ripple. And that was a click to give, search to give website, which we launched in 2007. And um, the idea was that 100% of the profits that were generated or 100% of the revenue that was generated from ads on our site was donated to a charity that the user selected. We realized pretty quickly that 100% revenue donation model kind of doesn't work. Um, not only you know, are you losing money literally every year to kind of cover the costs that, that the revenue is not taken care of, but um, on top of that, especially in technology, you need to be investing in order to stay at the cutting edge of what's going on. And we didn't, you know, our business model didn't have any leftover retained earnings because everything was getting donated, which meant that although we launched and got a lot of attention and the product was good, it quickly became something that, you know, was no longer relevant. Um, and so I kind of learned from that, that, you know, hundred percent revenue donation didn't work. And so the next concept was one that um, someone I'd gone to university with had, which was to run a nonprofit bar here in Melbourne. And uh, the idea was that we'd sell different beers and wines from all over the developing world and the proceeds or the profits from the sales would go back to organizations in each drinks country of origin. And so I raised the capital to get that started, opened that in February 2013 and ran it for about three and a half years. And the challenge with that business model was, you know, 100% of profits were being donated, which I realized pretty quickly was um, not a great way to build a scalable business because you're having to kind of purge all of your profits from the business in the form of donations as you get up to the end of the financial year. And as a result, you know, if you're a fast growing business, that probably means you need to borrow money in order to have enough cash to be able to make the donation. And as the business grows year on year, you end up borrowing more and more money 
which makes the business less and less stable the, the bigger it gets. And the other big challenge there was, um, I mean, lots of challenges, but a bricks and mortar business is inherently unscalable. It's very difficult to run 400 bars all around the country that would allow everyone to have access to them wherever they were. And so after kind of getting that business, um, you know, turning it from an idea to something that was going to happen, I took a step back and said, is this going to be the thing that changes the world? And realized that um, I probably needed something that was more accessible to anyone, regardless of who they were, where they lived and what their interests were. And realized that, you know, the path to do that was probably around um, consumer packaged goods. And so one day, I think in the end of 2010, walked into the bathroom and saw a six pack of toilet paper sitting there and said, oh my God, we should sell toilet paper, call it Who Gives a Crap and use the profits to help build toilets. And that's how Who Gives a Crap got started. <laughs> that was it, just a lightning flash kind of moment, like light bulb went off your head and who gives a crap? Yeah. And so I think like, you know, my path into entrepreneurship is a little bit different because I went to university. A lot of people then go and work and then they line up their startup on the back of their work. I realized that I didn't want, you know, I just wasn't passionate about doing that, that work. Um, I felt like I could only be 70% as effective as if I could work on something I was truly passionate about. And so I started tinkering with, you know, what's the right idea? How do I get something to, to kind of take off and doing that from, you know, just my university network and try, trying to build that out over the years after that. And so um, the kind of missing piece of that story is, you know, you, to do that, you have to find a way to pay all the bills while you're figuring out like what's the right idea. And so um, I took a step back and said, you know, what's the highest hourly rate that I can earn and realized that I could tutor economics, finance, engineering. Um, they pay really good hourly rates and I could also do it in the, in the nights, in the evenings. And so I'd still have my regular 40 hour, you know, nine to five week available for me to kind of tinker on stuff. And then I tutored for about 15 hours in nights throughout the week to pay all the bills and pretty much earn the same amount as what my friends in other full-time jobs were earning. Um, and so I did that for a few years to kind of make it all piece together. Um, and there's a couple of other fun stories in there about how I got money together, but that was kind of the crux of, yeah, of the majority of it. And before we jump into who gives a crap, I really want to understand where that drive comes from, because you, you mentioned you got the risk beat out of you, the risk uh, taking attitude beat up for you in university. Um, but yet, you know, you, you still took massive risks after that. You still found the will to do that. And you, you've always seemed to have, you know, that, that social uh, piece integrated into everything that you're doing. Where does that come from? Yeah, I think um, the social piece comes from realizing like as a kid, and I was that kid that sold st stuff to people at school and, um, you know, went and started like a, a web design business when I was 17. Um, so I was always really entrepreneurial, but always felt a little bit icky about the transaction. Something didn't feel quite right about just exchanging, you know, goods for, for money. And so the social element for me was really about, you know, solving this problem, this development economics problem that I knew existed around funding and a lack of funding being directed into the right organizations and organizations competing for funds, which is a big kind of rent seeking phenomenon. But on top of that, um, from a consumer perspective, I love consumption, but didn't feel, you know, I felt like something was missing in a transaction when you weren't embedding this extra social element into it. And so I wanted to find ways to, make consumption more powerful and better and shift the incentives of the consumers so that our products that we were selling were an absolute no brainer because they did the same thing that everyone else does plus all of this other extra stuff. And so it kind of, um, for me, it, it sort of was a path back into entrepreneurship that I felt really good about and didn't have that same kind of, you know, icky kind of salesperson element to it, but um, really also solved this huge development economics problem and this kind of funding challenge around the philanthropy market essentially being a fixed pool of capital that we can't very easily you know, grow the size of year on year. So if we're going to try and get more money flowing into high impact organizations, we have to change the, the source of where that funding is coming from. So instead of just relying on the philanthropy market, which is great, we can also tap into the trillions of dollars that change hands in the economy from you know, goods and services that are, are purchased every day. So moving to who gives a crap, you, you had this, light bulb moment when you walked into the bathroom and looked at the toilet paper. Uh, what, what happened after that for you to, to start a company? What was the, the founding story of who gives a crap? Yeah. So, so I kind of had that light bulb moment. Um, I called three friends cause I think that's like the first thing anyone <laughs> should do with a business idea. Go, does this make any sense? All three friends were like, that's an awesome idea. You've got to do it. 
the third friend I called was um, Jehan, who we'd actually founded Ripple, our first social business together, um, you know, almost three or four years prior. And he said, you know, I've just wrapped up at Boston Consulting. I'm figuring out what I want to do next. Let's go and have a look at this together and see if we can break the back of it. And so we worked on it um, together. We met up like, you know, um, in Melbourne CBD, went to the supermarket, looked at all the toilet paper shelves and we're like, I think this will work. Like it's got margin in it. Look at the way that all these products are being marketed. They're talking about puppies, pillows, feathers, like things that are completely unrelated to the actual product. I think there's a way here to talk about, you know, the sanitation problem and something that's actually physically related to the product and do it in a way that's really fun and engaging to actually, you know, change the way that this product is marketed. And so we um, then sort of said, cool, we think this can work, but we don't know how to start a toilet paper company. And um, we were pretty green at that point. And so I think a lot of our friends, we started talking to them about what we were doing and a few people started sending us links to a social business incubator in Boulder, Colorado called the Unreasonable Institute that was just launching its first year in 2010. And so we ended up winning a spot to this social business incubator, a lot of incredible mentors there from um, all over the world uh, and really kind of you know, formulated what the idea was, refined it down, got to a, a place where we could pitch the concept out and then came home um, and won a little bit of money from the Australian Centre for Social Innovation in Adelaide and also had a little bit of money coming from off the back of the incubator. And we used that to kind of eventually build out, you know, our crowdfunding campaign, find our producer that was going to help make this happen and really get kind of our first prototype together to launch the crowdfunding campaign in 2012. And I should say this is all like, you know, Kickstarter in 2012, there'd been six $1 million crowdfunding campaigns on when we launched, I think Dollar Shave Club had launched their viral video six months before ours. Warby Parker, no one really knew who they were yet. Like the, the direct consumer terminology didn't exist. It was really kind of the early days of, you know, all of those things taking off direct consumer crowdfunding and um, Shopify again was a, a really basic platform. So the landscape's changed a remarkable amount since then. But what we were doing, you know, was really like people were really scratching their heads saying, what like you guys have got great credentials you've gone to university jayhan you've been at boston consulting group why the hell are you like trying to start an online toilet paper company this doesn't make any sense and so um it seemed a little bit yeah odd from the outside but um, we really thought it was a good idea and wanted to figure out how we could make it work so you mentioned crowdfunding obviously wasn't a very common thing back then what was the process like for someone like yourself wanting to crowdfund for a toilet paper company it's not something that you see flash across Kickstarter, Indiegogo, even till today, you know, when it's common. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we, we, we realized that crowdfunding was an amazing um, tool for us because we could, first of all, get the capital we needed to do the, the production run. Second of all, we could physically put product into people's hands, which was a big problem for us. You know, the initial toilet paper production run is about 50,000 rolls. That's enough to fill your entire house from floor to ceiling. So if you can't find people to buy it, that's actually, you know, the challenge because it ends up in storage and costs you tons and tons of money. So finding our first 1000 customers was really important. And then we also wanted to test, will people actually buy toilet paper online that's called who gives a crap? And lastly, what's the right market for this? Is it Australia where e-commerce quite frankly sucked in 2012? Um, people didn't know what subscriptions were or is it America where e-commerce is, you know, the norm, Amazon's taken off subscriptions are something that everyone's comfortable with. And so we ran our crowdfunding campaign in both markets and said, let's look at where the performance is better and then double down on that market to kind of build out our early customer base, build up our team and, and kind of refine the product before eventually going global because we're going to need to go global if we're going to solve this problem of, you know, 2.3 billion people without access to a toilet. And so um, we kind of launched that campaign and we saw that twice as many people visited from Australia compared to the US, but we had three times the number of conversions in Australia um, compared to the US. So not only was it being shared more and had, you know, greater potential to, to resonate and go viral with the Australian market, it was also converting much better in the Australian market compared to the US. And so off the back of that, we ended up focusing on the Australian market for the first three years of the business. And then we re-entered the US in the end of 2016 um, and then the UK at the same time and have kind of built the team up globally around those markets. 
Why do you think it resonated so well with Australians? Um, I think the, the, there's something definitely about the city that you're in and your network being kind of, you know, a, a core part of getting a message out into the world. And so, especially in the early days, you know, we saw um, Melbourne was, was a much stronger market for us than Sydney, despite Sydney being a little bit bigger in terms of population. And I think that's partly because the value set of the average person in Melbourne is more closely aligned to our values as a business. But I think it was also that that's where our network is. And so a lot of our first early customers were coming from our personal network and then telling other people about it, having that kind of word of mouth viral effect, which is what we really relied on to um, get the business started in the first couple of years. And so being and having the physical presence in one market, I think really you know, helps to, to um, accelerate the pace at which you can grow in that market. And I should say we did have, um, you know, one of the co-founders was, living in San Francisco at the time, but um, there was definitely more groundswell around what we were doing in the Australian market, especially with you know, the branding agency that we'd used. We'd had um, an ad agency who'd helped us with the crowdfunding campaign. So a lot of kind of our, you know, our really kind of core um, um, team and, and partners were based in the Australian market. Have you had to change the strategy in which you touch base with consumers over time? Because like you said, direct to consumer wasn't a big thing back then, but today you're seeing brands like Koala, uh, you know, Temple Webster, all these direct to consumer brands that, you know, do have a, a presence in Australia and, you know, people are aware of the term direct to consumer. So has your strategy of reaching customers had to evolve over time? Um, not too much. I, 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 yes, definitely. But it probably feels like not too much. I think the, um, you know, the, the fundamentals there are that we have always really listened intently to feedback from our customer and wanted to try and over deliver on what all of their expectations were. So those fundamentals haven't changed, but um, I think the, the tools and tactics that we use are like constantly evolving to figure out how we can better service our customer and keep our team close to the customer. Probably the biggest challenge there is that when you're a, a one to 10 person team, everyone's having a lot of interaction with the customer. And so it's super easy to kind of stay close to those customer insights. We're a team of almost 90 now globally. And so um, we've had to shift, you know, now I don't really have much customer contact at all. So we've had to shift the way that we have customer insights kind of filtering from our customers into the business and then across the business so that everyone's kind of staying in touch with, with what our customers are saying. And so, um, I think as long as the fundamental philosophy of how we you know, grow the business is there around, you know, the customer being an important part of that, then the trick is really about the tools and processes that you use to allow that information to get to where it needs to be in the organization. Thanks, Simon. And jumping into the ethical and social mission of who gives a crap, could you just give us a quick rundown of what exactly that mission is? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we started who gives a crap because there was about 2.4 billion people without access to a toilet globally. And we realized that this was probably one of the most off track of the kind of development goals that existed. And that's because unlike clean water, where you can, you know, take photos of, of kids drinking water out of a well for the first time, toilets aren't sexy and people don't want to like look at photos of them and talk about them at, at dinner parties. And so we're seeing a lot of the other kind of development goals really improving quite rapidly, but toilets were being left behind. And as a result, we kind of looked at it thinking, this is crazy because toilets are something that everyone in the developed world takes for granted every single day. It's hard to imagine you know, life without a toilet, but this is you know 40% roughly of the entire world that doesn't have access to a toilet and the health impacts from that are really, really bad. So let's kind of use a, pro a product that we all need and we all use every day and use it to help people in need. And that was kind of the, the simplicity around what we did that made Who Gives Crap successful. And so you donate 50% of your profits towards developing uh, or helping to develop toilets and give people access to toilets in uh, the developing parts of the world, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So we use half of our profits to help build toilets across different parts of the developing world. We fund now um, a lot of Australia's closest partners, so East Timor, Papua New Guinea, Cambodia, um, through WaterAid Australia, and then we work with WaterAid USA in, in Central America, and then we've got a few partners that we work with in Kenya and East Africa as well. Do you find there is a tension between that social mission versus uh, high growth, high scale? Uh, we see a lot of companies trying to adopt the social mission right now, but you know, have you ever found yourself having to, to pick one over the other, social versus growth? 
I think the, um, the, there's a couple of things to unpack here. I think for us, um, we're lucky in that the social mission is tied to our profit. And so if our goal is to maximize our donations, we can kind of use maximizing our profit as a proxy for that. And I think maximizing profits should be the goal of every single business out there, but often for startups, they're not necessarily. And so the tension for us has come from, you know, in the early years, could we grow faster by raising capital and moving the business into a position where it's not profitable, but we're acquiring customers faster and then eventually you know, coming into a position of profitability later on. So the typical kind of way of, you know, using building a venture backed startup, but we said in our business that we wanted to make sure we were profitable every year so that we were fulfilling our, our promise to our customers of donating half of our profits. And we felt that profits had to be positive to do that. And as a result, that was kind of the tension around, you know, we're probably growing a little bit slower in the early years so that we can fulfill that, that goal. But um, we were still kind of tripling the business in the, the first few years and we've continued to double the business every year since then. So that puts us like solidly into the, you know, the high growth um, kind of metrics around what uh, the company's growth should look like at any stage. We sit above the Mendoza curve and kind of all of those things that high growth startups look at. Um, but we've been able to do that, I think, because we learned early on how to grow the business in a way that was profitable and was cash flow positive. And that's kind of that discipline stayed with us as the businesses continued to scale. And so you can see that's really paid off in the last year or so where, um, you know, our donation this year ended up being over $5 million, which is awesome. And the, the years, the three years prior, the donation was around 700,000. And that was because we're investing in growth quite heavily in each of those years. And so we sort of eroded our profit margin on the basis that we'd be able to, to grow the business and, and earn a bigger profit margin and donation this year, which is what's really, really, you know, eventuated. And has all that growth been uh, organically driven or have you brought on external investors as part of your growth story? Yeah. So um, it's from the early days, we sort of toyed with the idea of, you know, when is the right time to put capital into this business? And I think one of the kind of early conversations I had with someone who I was actually, you know, really intending to, to ask for, for funding, um, he, he sat me down and we were chatting about it. And before I got to the moment where I was going to make my ask, he said, wow, it sounds like you guys are almost break even. And if you can just go that little bit further by yourself, then you'll be able to like grow this company to a much bigger size before you need to take capital and therefore you won't need to give up as much and, and so on. And so I ended up kind of biting my tongue and not making the ask and instead started to think about how do we get through this next little kind of hurdle that we've got, which, you know, if we can get over that, that point, then we can potentially self-fund from there and realize that debt was going to be the right tool for us. And I was really lucky to, um, to meet a philanthropist who was helping me think about you know, the philanthropic side of the business who eventually said, hey, maybe I can also help with this kind of this debt challenge that you've got as well. And so he wrote us a, a very early um, piece of debt, which um, you know, was quite high risk for him, but he believed that um, you know, it was a potentially a very high impact piece of investment or piece of debt for him to make because if he could help us prove out our model, then you know, this $50,000 of debt that he, he was giving us could eventually turn into millions of dollars of donations later on. And so I think um, we met him within three weeks. We had you know, a, a kind of signed contract for this first $50,000 worth of debt. I think it had an 18 month maturity on it. We ended up repaying it in five months. And he said wow. to us, wow, like no one's ever repaid my debt that quickly. How about we um, you know, think about doing this again in the future when you're ready? And so we went, ended up kind of going back, I think about six months later and saying, yep, now we're ready to do a little bit more. And I think we ended up raising another 400,000 between him and another investor that came in as well and kind of use that to um, fund the working capital to grow the business, always making sure that, you know, that the amount of debt that we had was well below the amount of inventory that we were holding. So in theory, we could sell, up, sell down our inventory and make sure that we were able to repay the debt. And, um, we kind of did that, I think, through to about uh, 2016. Um, so the first four years of the business, I think at our upper limit, we had about $800,000 of debt in the business. We repaid all of that in um, yeah May of, sorry, it was 2018, May of 2018 when we repaid it. And we've been debt-free as a company since then, which you know, now means we should be able to, to self-fund if we stay on the path we're on. 
but we might also want to shift paths and, and think about our capital strategy to help us make that shift. That's a fantastic story. And you know, a lot of listeners on the podcast would be startup founders themselves or thinking of starting a, a startup. And I guess the common advice now is raise equity because, you know, debt's hard to service, et cetera. Like, but it seems to have worked really well for you. So how does a founder make that decision between debt versus equity? Yeah, I think like something that helped here is I, I did remember I worked in an investment bank briefly. So um, I, I have like quite a good background in cash flow modeling and, you know, very financially literate, which really helps with that because um, I could really understand the, you know, what were the mm. sort of key metrics that we had to focus on as a business to make sure that we didn't bankrupt ourselves. So that was one part of it. I think the other part of it that made it possible was that we found debt holders who were happy to have unsecuritized loans that were non-recourseable. So we weren't going to, um, you know, end up putting ourselves financially into the hole if everything kind of went pear-shaped and we weren't going to lose control of the business either. So we had very sympathetic investors. And I think um, those two things are, are really a key part of, of using debt in, in the way, the best way possible. Um, and so, yeah, sorry, I forget your question. Oh, that, how do you, how does the founder make that decision between when uh, debt is better than equity or vice versa? Yeah. And so, so I think the, the, what we realized was that we needed to fund working capital because the business was growing, you know, very quickly. And so we were always trying to buy more stock than what we mm. were selling in any given month. And so we needed the capital to help us kind of you know, fund that, that additional stock purchase. Um, and so we, we said, this looks like it's the right debt's the right tool here because it's a working capital equation. And we modeled out, you know, what is the kind of cash flow position look like with a, a classical kind of um, cash flow model and realized that we had this sort of three year window where we'd be in a cash hole, mostly because we're making big donations at the end of every financial year. So we had this kind of sawtooth cash flow curve. And after three years, we'd come out the other side and be able to you know, self fund the business. I think it actually took us longer than three years in the end, because every time we opened a new warehouse and we now operate 10 warehouses globally, we had to fill that warehouse with stock, which increased our working capital requirements. Um, but we could see that the logic of the original cash flow model was somewhat working. And so we were confident that we could come out the other side of it and put ourselves into a position where we'd be cash flow positive on an ongoing basis. So I think coming back to your question, what's, how do you know what's the right tool? I think for inventory heavy businesses that are relying on working capital to, uh, or need, you know, need financing because of the working capital, I think debt's an incredible tool for that style of business. It's probably not the best tool if you're, you know, a, a SaaS business and you're very, um, your cost base is very staff heavy and you're kind of making a big bet on whether you can sell enough of your product in order to eventually be profitable. Um, there are investors that will look at those sorts of opportunities and there's certainly sort of these hybrid VC funds now where um, I think IndyVC is a great example of that in the US where they're thinking about their investment as potentially being closer to um, you know, a debt investment than a pure equity investment. Um, so it's exciting to see kind of the investor landscape shift around that in the last probably five or so years as well. That's great advice, Simon. Um, I just have one more question about the social angle of your company. Uh, and I think it's especially important during these times because, um, because of the social mission of your company, how difficult is it to source supply chains and producers that actually reach and adhere to a higher ethical standard? Yeah, I think um, this was a big question that I grappled with early on. And the way that we think about, um, you know, most parts sort of break the business into three parts. There's the production of toilet paper, the physical selling of toilet paper, and then the impact that we generate with, you know, with the money afterwards. And so when we got started, we realized that the production of toilet paper and the impact side of things, we didn't need those to be perfect. We needed them to be good enough. And so we could get them to 80% ready and then prove that we could actually sell enough toilet paper that this business model was going to work before coming back and optimizing to get those to, you know, get the production and the impact piece to hundred percent. And so um, when I first kind of sourcing, which I was doing myself, it was just me kind of working in a business full time for the first couple of years. Um, I really wrap, grappled with this question because I wanted to find, you know, a producer who had hundred percent solar energy, you know, running like beautiful kind of clean um, energy setup but also had you know, amazing kind of um, 
production OHS and everything that, that would make them world-class. But when you're finding your first producer, those things are often out of reach. And so I realized um, on that journey that, that we had the potential to really have a lot of impact with our production by finding someone who was doing it good enough and taking them to that optimal level over the next few years, using our kind of contract with them as the leverage to, to really, um, you know, um, go on that journey together. And especially when you're doing business in China, which is where we were doing all of our initial production, you need to build that relationship up and use, you know, your, your business with that, that partner as the leverage to be able to have those conversations in the future. And so, um, what that meant was, was finding someone that, that we thought was 80% there rather than hundred percent and working with them over time on, um, kind of consistent, um, third party frameworks to really refine how we're working together to get the ethical side of things working really well. And so we lean on the, the BSCI framework, which is kind of a um, continuous improvement framework that assesses all of the different parts of um, the ethical side of, of production. And then have a couple of other factors that we introduce as well. And that allows us to kind of have scorecards with all of our factories and then continually improve on the, the areas where we want to, to push harder and strive to be better. Have you ever had a, had a, supply partner or uh, a distributor etc who didn't meet that standard um the the score yeah i mean we've definitely we've definitely looked at producers and said this this doesn't make sense you know we're, we're not going to work with you because of of these reasons um so yeah definitely um that's happened over the years um i think the the good thing about the bsci framework is that it scores all of the different parts of what someone's doing. And so, you know, a lot of the work that we've done recently has been around um, <clears throat> superannuation and making sure mm. that, that, you know, the um, workers in the production facilities that we're in are having superannuation accounts that are set up in a way that will allow them to actually benefit from that in the best way possible in the future. And sometimes you find that there's a misalignment between um, how the government sets something up or how, um, some of these, um, you know, external third-party um, scoring systems work and what's actually best for the individuals. And so it takes time to figure out, you know, what's the right solution there that we can put into place that's going to really achieve the best long-term outcome. And as a business, you know, we're in the business of making people's lives better. So making sure that we're getting that right is a really important part of who we are. So jumping into everyone's, uh, the topic on everyone's mind right now, COVID-19, Yep. Uh, we all know that in Australia, there was the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. What was it like in the uh, who gives a crap office during that period? Yeah, so I think um, we'd sort of looked at in February um, at, you know, Hong Kong running out of toilet paper, Singapore running out of toilet paper, Japan running out of toilet paper. And we sort of looked at it and said, oh, you know, that would never happen in Australia. But like, what, a, what an amazing phenomenon. And then, yeah, the first couple of days of March, we saw daily sales kind of double one day and then you know 5x the next day 12x the day after that and it looks like they were going to go to 30 to 40x the day after that so you know we're doing more than a month of sales in a day which our kind of order systems aren't built to deal with such huge variability in in volume because um, we make assumptions around you know what's the mix of products how much premium versus regular toilet papers kind of flowing through the store on the average day and if you start to um, see significant departure from what our like uh, assumptions are, then we can run out of product very quickly without necessarily realizing it. And so that's a big problem for us because we have a lot of businesses like you guys and subscribers at home who we want to make sure that they never ever run out of toilet paper again. And so we said, you know, this is, this is crazy. I think um, we've essentially gone viral because of a virus and as a result, We've sold you know, more toilet paper in a day than, than what we ever have before. I think at our peak, we were selling 28 rolls of toilet paper every second. But we need to turn our store off to make sure that we've got enough for our subscribers and our business customers. And so we moved to a sold out position and we put up a kind of email notification so our customers could find out when we're back in stock. And um, I think that was quite a kind of a stressful moment for the team to kind of get to that point, but also very exhilarating. It sort of, in a way, felt like we'd been training for that for, you know, the five years prior. And we thought that we'd end up with a few thousand people kind of signing up to that email list. 
we ended up with more than 600,000 people signing up to that email list. And so that is, um, you know, was, was kind of like, whoa, like this is, this is something that is a once in a lifetime phenomenon for, for us. And, and um, you know, I think everyone in the team was a little bit exhausted from what had just happened, but realized that, that this was our moment to shine. Like this was kind of what we, <laughs> yeah, what we'd been training for really. And so we said, you know, we can't just email our customers to say, hey, we're back in stock because we'll sell out straight away. We don't have half a million units that we can sell um, coming in next week. So we realized that we needed to think about things a little bit differently. And so we took our 48 roll packs and packed them out into two 24 roll boxes. We um, hired and trained 25 freelancers in a week so that we could deal with three times the number of customer service inquiries. And then we worked with our warehouses and our couriers to figure out what's the upper limit of units that we can send any given day so that we're not, you know, overloading both the, the workload of our warehouse, but also the size of the courier trucks, because there's only so much of our products that you can fit in a truck before you end up, you know, having products that, that overflows. And so we kind of set all of those upper limits and built out a big model to tell us, you know, what's the absolute upper limit that we can hit for our warehouses, our couriers, and for our customer service inquiries, because we know that you know, some customers will write in with every order that we send, some percentage. And using that, we figured out the optimal number of emails that we could send every day based on you know, the conversion rate of those emails to invite a set a number of people through an invite-only version of our store with the invitation linked to their email address. And so we operated that invite-only version of our store for about six to eight weeks and eventually cleared through that 600,000 person email list and got the site back online and operating as normal, which was pretty amazing. Um, so I think at the end of that, you know, everyone said it was like one of the kind of coolest moments to go through in their career, but um, as well as being exhilarating was just like kind of absolutely exhausting. So we're now trying to get the team to, to take holidays and, and, you know, especially for our Australian team who are mostly in Melbourne, just take a week off at home because everyone's pretty worn out from, um, from yeah, going through that sort of once in a lifetime moment. I think kind of the funny part to that, that story is that, um, you know, we make our big donation at the end of the financial year and we'd locked the donation on June 23 so that we could, you know, go out with a press release in early July um, and so we'd set the donation, I think it was, you know, $5.6 million and we were really excited. Three hours after we locked it and sent out the press release, panic buying kicked off again in Victoria. And we were like, oh no, all of our <laughs> sales forecasts are going to be off the end of financial year. And so we ended up having to make an extra $250,000 donation on June 30, just to, to catch up with that extra week of sales that came in. <laughs> That's incredible. What an incredible story. Did, did anyone try to return toilet paper? to you guys um i don't think so i think it, it, the, the, the the i mean the funniest one was um and people might have seen this but one of our customers a regular customer they'd gone to buy toilet paper again and they you know gone through the checkout like i need 48 rolls they put 48 into the quantity box hit order and the product had shown up the next day but they'd ordered 48 cartons with 48 rolls in every <laughs> carton so it was like more than a lifetime supply of toilet paper and they were like, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do? And they got in touch with us and said, uh, you know, like I've made this big boo-boo and we're like, do you want us to pick it up? You know, like we'll sort it out. And um, they ended up saying, look, we'll keep it for a school fundraiser and we'll like tack $10 onto the, every box. And then um, we said, cool, sounds good. Let, it, let us refund you for the bulk shipping because we were able to send it you know, much cheaper than 48 individual boxes. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, toilet paper shelves were empty and all of a sudden they had 48 boxes of toilet paper, which made them, you know, globally famous. I think this ended up getting covered in like press releases all around the world. We saw it in like five different languages and um, yeah, it was, it was quite something. So I think um, at that point, everyone was, you know, realizing that, that toilet paper was, was gold. So we weren't getting too many returns, <laughs> but um, we were certainly encouraging customers to, check in with their neighbors and their friends and family and just make sure that the people around them had what they needed because obviously our customers are usually buying in bulk. And so um, they've, they've definitely got some spare and, and they don't need 48 rolls to get them through <laughs> the next couple of months. Um, so yeah, it was, a, I think we ended up running a kind of what we called a apply it forward campaign where 
we're encouraging our customers to share roles with strangers by playing it forward. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that sort of got a lot of traction, which was great. And, and for you personally, how does it feel to know that, you know, you were responsible for $5.8 million of donations uh, to your partners this year? That must be an incredible feeling. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we were forecasting in February that it would be our first multi-million dollar donation, which was great. We'd sort of, as I said, we'd worked really hard, you know, in investing in growth for a couple of years prior, which had reduced our donation. And so we were expecting this year to be the year that all of that sort of paid off. And then once March hit and we started doing, you know, significantly higher sales months than what, we, what, we'd, what we'd forecast, we realized that our donation was actually going to be way bigger than what we thought was possible. So I think um, it was even in the last couple of months, we thought it would be like three and then four. And then when we finally made it, it was five and then it ended up being 5.85. And that was, um, we were kind of speechless because it, it really showed that not only could our business model really work and continue to scale and, and hopefully we'll see that donation get bigger and bigger in the years to come, but I think it was actually a, a good moment of saying these business models that are about profit, profit, purpose, and planet actually have a lot of legs and the future of business is going to be making sure that businesses talk about what they're doing from a sustainability angle, but also talk about what they're doing from an ethical angle and where the money's ultimately ending up. And so I think, you know, we're hopefully going to be one of the, the kind of challenger brands that, that starts that becoming, you know, a, a really mainstream phenomenon for these bigger incumbents that probably haven't ever had to talk about what they're doing from a CSR perspective more than burying it in their annual report. And I think in the next 10 years, as businesses like ours get bigger, we're going to see that changing a lot. And we're going to see these campaigns becoming a necessary part of what that business's brand and ultimately their soul looks like in order to, to, to continue attracting customers into their business moving forward. And that transparency that you show to the charities that you partner with also permeates to your own team because from our research, it seems like the culture of transparency is something that you've really actively fostered uh, within your own team. So what do you mean by that transparency? And maybe could, could you give a few examples of that uh, for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we learned early on that um, when you make mistakes, you need to be really open and honest. And that happened after the very first production run, which again, I, I did, I was the only person working in the business full time. I'm an engineer, but I'm an electrical engineer. So I didn't know that much about manufacturing. And as a result, um, I did the first production run. I thought I'd done a really good job of, you know, producing our first 200,000 rolls, but I'd actually forgotten to check that our perforating blades were being sharpened regularly enough. And I produced 200,000 rolls of imperfectly perforated toilet paper where you couldn't get the sheets apart without a pair of scissors. Oh, and no. so our, our crowdfunding campaign customers had backed this crazy idea. They'd waited eight months for, for product. We'd sent it out to them. Everyone was over the moon. They were posting you know, photos of it to their social media, giving it to their, their friends and colleagues. And we had this massive word of mouth groundswell around what we were doing. And we're like, wow, this is going to be way bigger than what we ever thought was possible. And we're giving ourselves a huge pat on the back. And then our customers started writing in saying, love the idea, love the packaging, you know, love everything this stands for, but the product sucks. <laughs> and so I had to put up my hand and say, you're right. Like, I am so sorry. You guys have backed this crazy idea. You've, you've put your money behind this and I've made a mistake and I've gone and got this completely wrong. And I want you to come back and believe in us one more time, because I think this idea is too good to let go from this one mistake that I've made. And if you do that, I promise you, we're going to get the perforations right. And so I did the second production run. I took photos of the perforations. We made videos of like sheets of toilet paper tearing perfectly on a toilet roll holder and sent, literally sent that out to our first 1000 customers. And luckily enough, people came back and bought from us again. And that I think taught us that, you know, if I'd said, instead of saying, you're right, I've made a mistake. If I'd said, what are you talking about? The product's great. We probably would have bankrupted the company before we even got started. And so I think we learned really early on that, transparency is incredibly important. And we say that our customers will forgive us for our lumps and our bumps as long as we're open and honest about them. And so that sort of permeates through all of our customer support. If a customer asks us a question, we'll, and we don't know the answer to it, we'll, we'll ask, why don't we know the answer to this? And is this something that we need to figure out? And then we'll go back to the customer with what the response looks like. Um, and that goes for the team as well. So, um, you know, if someone wants to understand anything about how we're thinking about a certain aspect of the business, 
if they want to challenge one of the stances that we're making, then um, we encourage them to do that. And there's a lot of transparency through, you know, all of our communications. We try to avoid having private channels and slacks so anyone can, can drop in and see what's going on to the point where, you know, our weekly cash flow updates, which are a really core part of growing a bootstrap business, they're in an open channel where someone can drop in and, and see how we're performing from a cash flow perspective um, and see how we're, you know, the tools that we're using to grow the business and um, hopefully, you know, learn a lot about um, the cash management, the finance side of what we're doing as well. Uh, and so I think, um, yeah, that transparency is really important because you can't just be transparent with your customer and not with your team. I think it has to flow through everything that you do. And, and ultimately, I think that that's the best way to grow a business. Fantastic. And, and so I'm conscious of time. So I just want to end on, on one question and it might be a pretty big question, but you know, for yourself, uh, you know, you started out as a single person, like you said, you know, doing perforations yourself, looking out suppliers yourself. Uh, what's it like now being the CEO of a company that, that operates in over six time zones in multiple countries? Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly, I mean, it's certainly changed a lot. I think that the time zone challenge has been there for us from day zero because I was originally in Melbourne. Jehan eventually moved to Los Angeles. Danny was living in the kind of New York time zone. So we, um, and then we had our first staff member was in the Philippines. And so we were always spread across this like, you know, four time zone um, kind of um, area of the world. And then, you know, production in China and, and eventually needing to, to put a team on the ground there as well. Um, and so I think, yeah, the time zone challenge has kind of been there from, from the beginning, but we've probably got better at managing it a little bit more recently, which is the benefit of having more people in the company. So, and also, uh, you know, as founders, a lot of us have had kids and realized that we can't work 24-7. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the big shift is probably going from a team of one where you're doing everything to... Um, a team of 10 where now you're managing the team to a team of 50 plus where now, you know, my job is really about being a leader and inspiring the team to carry out amazing work. And that's a really challenging journey to go on, especially if you are like me and haven't had a ton of management experience before you come into, you know, running a team like that in your own startup. And so um, what, what people often talk about is the job of the CEO changes every six months. And I think that's absolutely true and probably the biggest challenge of, of being a CEO of, um, you know, a high growth startup is that you're constantly having to not only um, continue changing the jobs that your team are working on and making sure they're doing a great job, but you're having to look forward and ask what's my job look like in six months and what do I need to be doing now in order to get myself ready for that next shift that I've got to make. Um, but incredibly rewarding. It's, you know, the most awesome job. I think, um, early on I'd, I'd said, Oh, you know, I don't want to run like a, a company of more than 50 people or whatever, but um, I've just found that it's been yeah, incredibly re rewarding. You learn so much every day. And um, from that, you know, I just look forward to this journey that we're on and continuing being a part of that well into the future. Simon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. That was a really great chat. I, I loved learning about your story, what you do. And uh, you know, I, I, we appreciate you taking that time out of your day to just, chat with us. So thanks again, Simon. That was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks again for being a great customer.